You're listening to audio from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more information about Pleasant Valley, visit our website at pleasantvalley.cc. Love the holiday season. Love the hot chocolate. Love the uh, flannel pajamas. Love the... um, uh, Peanut butter balls is my favorite Christmas candy. Some folks call them Buckeyes. Um, love the, the, the wonder in my kids' eyes as they make out their Christmas list. I was thinking about my favorite memories growing up was going through the old Sears Roebuck catalog and circling everything I wanted in that catalog, uh, most of which I never actually got for Christmas. It was fun to think about it anyway. So I love all that comes with Christmas, but I have to be honest, I also love me some Hallmark Christmas movies. And, and for that reason, I suffer all kinds of persecution from people who say that they're my, my friends and from people who say that they're my wife, uh, who make all... <laughs> For people who make all kinds of fun of me that I like Hallmark movies, but here's the thing about Hallmark movies is um, they're, they're basically all the same. And let's just acknowledge it. The other night we, we started one, and within the first three minutes, Annie predicted every single thing that would happen. And then she got, you know, she left and went in the other room and did her own thing. And I finished it. And sure enough, she got it right, every single thing she predicted. So we're going to see a little clip here of how every single Hallmark movie is exactly the same. You know, I'm one step away from becoming partner, and partners work on Christmas, Mom. I don't care if it's Dad's last Christmas before we pull the plug. This is a big account. Babe, are you still going on about becoming partner? How many times do I have to tell you? I'll worry about the money. You can be a stay-at-home wife. But I don't stay at home, and I'm not your wife. Uh, you sure about that? Well, I always plan to get married before 30, so, okay. Absolutely, my. Hi. My wife used to wonder how I could be such a klutz while juggling jobs as a dog therapy groomer in an antique music box repairman. Your wife? She passed away three Christmases ago. But she once told me never give up on someone you can't go a day without thinking about. I should. Babe, great news. Just got off the phone with your boss and you don't have to worry about the big account. We're catching the next flight to Vail. Wait, what? Don't be stupid. We're getting married. Just you and me. Mother will officiate. Oh, no! I'm so sorry! Oh, I'm so dumb. Oh, I can't believe how... Daddy, this is why Mommy used to wonder how you juggle your jobs as a hospital clown and a rocking horse painter. Hey, buddy. Look what I have behind your ear. Can you spend Christmas with us? You can bake cookies, just like Mommy and I used to. (laughs) You're engaged? Why didn't you tell me? I didn't want to ruin what we had. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Looks like it's another Christmas with no Mommy. Come on, son. Come on, let's go. The plane's here. I've been thinking about this for a long time, and, well, someone once told me, never give up on someone you can't go a day without thinking about. Babe, that's great, but we really gotta go. 
There's someone I can't stop thinking about, but it's not you. I never knew you felt that way. You came back! I never left. <gasps> and I never will. Oh, you've got something behind your ear. You'd never ask. <laughs> so now you've seen every Hallmark movie. So you can, uh, you can check that off the list. It's true, though. Uh, Christmas, according to Hallmark, is very predictable. But if you think about it, Christmas, according to the Bible, is actually very unpredictable. If you were God and you were going to write the Christmas story, I wonder if we would have written it the way that God wrote it. Think about how unpredictable the Christmas story is. So many things you would not have seen coming. So God, Christmas, is coming into the world. The, the birth of his son is happening. So you would think, you would expect the son of God maybe to be born to a, a princess, an, an affluent princess in the highest of castles. Isn't that what you would expect? But the son of God comes and is going to be born to a poor, lower class, unknown teenage girl named Mary. Who saw that coming? You would have thought that the Son of God would be born in an extravagant capital city where the masses would come in and, and be there to worship him at his arrival. But no, the Son of God is going to be born, of all places, in a small little obscure town off the beaten path known as Bethlehem with a population of only a few hundred people. Who would have ever thought that's where God would come onto the scene? One would expect that the Son of God would be born in the nicest hospital around with the finest doctors in the world. After all, this is the king of the world. Doesn't he deserve the best treatment and, and care? But the Son of God is born in a trough, in a manger, only surrounded by teenage parents, imagine, and animals. Who would have ever predicted this? You would expect if the king of the world is going to be born, that all of creation would bow to him at his birth. But instead, baby Jesus in humility is born under the stars that he himself created. Who would have guessed any of that? Now, all of that happens in the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. Jesus Christ is born. Remember, between the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament, God is completely silent for 400 years. Did you know that? God didn't say a word to anybody that we know about for 400 years. No miracles, no signs and wonders, no messages from angels, no prophets, no more scripture reading. God is silent for 400 years. And so you would think that now that the Son of God is coming onto the earth, that God would break 400 years of silence in a way where he would have a massive 
press conference, right, with all the best media outlets to get the word out that, that God is here. You would have thought that's how God would break the silence, but that would be far too predictable. Hallmark would do it that way. So God does it very differently. Instead, God breaks 400 years of silence by breaking the news of Jesus coming not to kings and prominent officials who had all the political power and sway and money and influence. None of those heard first that Jesus was coming. Instead, God broke the news first to a group of uneducated, unsophisticated, unimpressive, unpolished men with calloused hands who spent their days working out in the fields. A group of sweaty, smelly shepherds who were outcast in that society. Who would have ever guessed they would be the first to hear the greatest news in the world? And so week one of our Christmas sermon series, Christmas According to the Shepherds. We're going to look at various, often obscure uh, characters in the Christmas story and see the story from their perspective. So today, Christmas according to the shepherds. So I want us to go to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read the story. If you would, let's stand together out of respect for the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in number 8. The Holy Spirit says, as he tells the Christmas story, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom God is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when the shepherds saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Thank you. You may be seated. Christmas according to the shepherds. And four lessons we learn from the shepherd's perspective. And the first is this. The shepherds, I think, remind us that Christmas is God's invitation for outsiders to come in. Outsiders like shepherds. Dan Darling has this great little book that he just published that uh, I just got from Amazon. It's called the, the Christmas. And notice what Darling says. He says, today shepherds are romanticized in every single Christmas pageant. But in the first century, nobody thought shepherds were cute. And certainly nobody thought they were important. But there they were, the first to know at Christmas. Most people considered shepherds to be outsiders in society. But, but they, of all the people God could have chosen, they were the first that God invited in front row seats to see the arrival of King Jesus. 
Now think about what must have been going through God's mind when deciding who he wanted to be at his own welcoming party of his son. God set out to invite in those who didn't have a place to belong. Because God longs to know those who have never been known. God looks for people that are overlooked. And he brings them in to get the best views of Jesus. And so for Jesus' first birthday party, God invites in a group of men that no one else ever had over for dinner. God invites into Jesus' birthday party a group of men who never got invited to social functions or Christmas parties. He invites in the outcast, the shepherds, the unimpressive. And then as Jesus grows and becomes a, a, a mature man, as it were, himself, Jesus models that same kind of uh, mindset when he invites people in to his life. I mean, think about the people Jesus surrounded himself with. Think about the people Jesus invited over. When Jesus came up with his Thanksgiving invitation list, remember who the list included? The, the blind, the crippled, the lame. He chooses his 12 disciples, the people that would be with him the most. Who did he choose? Primarily uneducated, unsophisticated, unimpressive men. Fishermen, many of them. And then Jesus comes along, and, and a group of people in society that were, that were greatly considered to be a nuisance, kids, children. And yet Jesus loves spending time with little snotty-nosed kids. In fact, he's, he, one of the few times Jesus gets intensely angry is in Matthew 19 when the disciples said, Jesus, you don't have time for kids. Keep the kids away. He says, no, let the little children come to me. They belong to me. And then in that society as well, women shamed, shunned, no place in real society for so many women. And yet some of Jesus' closest friends, Mary, Martha, women with him, Spending time with them. You see, Jesus saw people that others didn't see. Jesus looked for the overlooked. And then he did the same with, remember the wee little man named Zacchaeus? We love singing about his kids. Literally, everybody else overlooked Zacchaeus. But Jesus found him in a tree. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come to your house today. Nobody else ever wanted to go to Zacchaeus' house, but Jesus did. You see, Jesus has his heart for people that don't belong, that don't fit in, that don't get included or accepted. And then Jesus did it with notorious sinners as well. And this is why he caught the most flack. Why does he spend time with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he a friend of sinners? Remember the woman who was caught in adultery? And the law said you, you take rocks and you throw them at her until she's dead. And the religious people um, came with stones ready to kill her. And Jesus said, okay, you can throw the stones, but only if you haven't sinned yourself. And so they all dropped the stones and walked away. And Jesus loved her. He forgave her. But then he said, go and sin no more. So this is Christmas, isn't it? Christmas is Jesus came to earth with a target group of people, namely outcast, people like shepherds, people like the woman caught in adultery, snotty-nosed kids, the overlooked, the neglected, the poor, the crippled, the incarcerated, the abused, the sinners, the, the ones that the society said, no, keep them out. Jesus said, no, bring them in. Bring them under the manger. Bring them in to see me, God says. 
So Jesus Christ, his mission wasn't one in which he looked for impressive insiders who had the most sway and influence. No, Jesus came looking for unimpressive outsiders who just couldn't seem to get it together. Because only if you're an unimpressive outsider who can't get it together, then and only then do you see you need a savior. But the people who have it all together in their righteous sophistication and all their religiosity, they fail to see they need a savior. You'll never belong at Jesus' birthday party until you realize you don't belong. And then in humility, you, you see your need for the love and forgiveness of Jesus, and he invites you in. The Apostle Paul makes this unmistakably clear in the New Testament. He's writing to the, the, one of the most gifted groups of people in all the New Testament, the church at Corinth, who had all the spiritual gifts, for example. But then Paul looks at them, and he reminds them of where they came from. He reminds them of why God saved them, and it's frankly because of how unimpressive they were. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. He says, consider your calling, brothers. That calling there is what we call the effectual call. It's a salvific call when the Spirit of God calls someone. It's a summons, not merely an invitation. It's a summons to Christ in salvation. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. That's not why God saved you. Not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not, that is, people that the world consider to be nobodies. Nobodies. That's who God chooses to bring to nothing those that are. So that, why would God do this? Why does God choose the most unimpressive people to save? Precisely so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God did not come for wise people because wise people don't know they need a savior. God did not come for powerful people. God did not come for those who have it all together. He came for the weak. He came for the low, for the despised. He came for nobodies. He came for shepherds. He came for shepherds. For people who realize they, they're not worthy to be in the presence of God. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3 in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Who gets into the kingdom? Only those who are poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be spiritually humble, to be spiritually broken, to come to the end of your spiritual rope and realize that we're lost and sinful and need a savior. So if we think we deserve to be in the kingdom of God because of our own righteousness, we'll never be invited in. You have to come to the end of your rope. You have to see our need of, of a Savior. But when we realize how lost we are and desperately we need a Savior, then we are fit. Only then are we fit for the kingdom of God. Then we receive an invitation to Jesus' birthday party. Well, apparently the shepherds were those kinds of people because they were the first to be invited in. So I love what Martin Luther wrote, the great reformer in the 16th century. He said, who then are those to whom this joyful news of Christmas is to be proclaimed. Those who are faint-hearted and feel the burden of their sins, like the shepherds, to whom the angels proclaim the message, letting the great lords in Jerusalem, who do not accept it, go on sleeping. He said, God will pass over some to get to others who are weak and frail and needy and broken 
and who realize their only hope is in a Savior. Friends, we will never be saved until we realize we need to be saved. The shepherds understood this. But secondly, notice from the shepherd's perspective that God longs to use unlikely candidates to be his greatest messengers. Have you ever thought about the fact that after the arrival of Jesus, the shepherds were the world's first missionaries? The shepherds were the world's first missionaries. Think about the implications of that. In verse 16, they meet baby Jesus, the Christ child, the anointed one. And then in verse 17 and 18, they immediately begin to go tell other people. And when they saw it, they made known. The shepherds made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. That was a saying from verse 11 that Christ was this child, the, the Lord, the Savior of all people. The, the gospel. This is the Messiah. And then... In verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So the shepherds meet Jesus, and they immediately begin to go tell everybody, this is the Christ, this is the Lord, this is the Savior of all people. And here's what I hope is so inspiring to us, this has been inspiring to me, is the shepherds didn't go through 10 years of inductive Bible study before they started telling people about Jesus. No, I mean, they... They, they didn't get their lives in perfect order first and then start telling people about it. They, they didn't say, well, I got to be sober for at least 12 months and then I'll start sharing the gospel. They, no, they, they met Jesus and immediately they couldn't contain themselves. They had to go tell other people. None of them went to seminary first. None of them went and learned Greek and Hebrew in the, in the scriptures first. None of them had 100,000 followers on Instagram before they could really have influence for God's kingdom. No, they were everyday, ordinary people who were just excited to tell other people about Jesus. You know, and it made me start thinking this week of the, of the people who were missionaries in my life. Journey with me in your own story. Who were the people that God used most significantly to introduce you to Jesus? Now, for some, maybe it was Billy Graham, maybe it was Mother Teresa. But for most of us, it was everyday, ordinary people whose picture will never be on the front of Christianity today. For most of us, it was people who, who don't have any followers on Instagram and who have very little prestige or nobility. For me, the missionaries that God sent into my life, people, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for people like Juanita Geyer. She's in heaven now. She was a widow in her 80s, and she taught my elementary Sunday school class at East Katie's Baptist Church for years, every single Sunday. I know Jesus because of Juanita Geyer. It's men like George Major, retired Army officer, never married, never had children, but gave his life to investing it in other people, lived at the local jail, sharing the gospel and the love of Jesus. We'd cook the most extravagant meals and have his middle school, Sunday school class and all of our families into his home, lived on the mission field in Africa, spent as much time in Africa as he did in America, gave his life, would beat his old hands on that Sunday school table, teaching us to love Jesus as young men. I wouldn't be a Christian if it weren't for George Major. And he's in heaven, and none of you have ever heard of him until now. It's people like uh, Donna Carter, 
Miss Donna, that's her husband, David. She was my high school biology teacher, public school. Unashamedly, in teaching us biology, taught her students that there was a God who was a creator who loved us. You know, I'm so thankful. There are men and women in this room in our public schools who are bold witnesses for Jesus. God bless you. We need you. I'm so thankful for you. And there's also a man like Coach Mike Wright, my social studies teacher and also my high school basketball coach, who never won any state titles, who will never be inducted into the KHSAA Hall of Fame. He was an average, ordinary coach whom none of you have ever heard of. And yet he prayed with us before every practice and every game. And he never cursed and screamed at his players, but he treated us with dignity and respect. And he taught us to love Jesus. It was a man like my Papa Stalins, who had a second grade education because he had an abusive father who beat him and his mom and his siblings, had to drop out of school, was a farmer starting in second grade until he died at 87. And yet my Papa Stalins taught me how to love Jesus. He paid me $5 in first grade when I helped him clean out his gutters. And he said, son, that's $5. You take 50 cents of that and you give your tithe to Jesus at church tomorrow. And so from the time I was in first grade until now, if, if, I, if I make 10 bucks, God gets at least a dollar because my papa Stalin's, Stalin's taught me that. So where would you be without those kinds of people in your life? Think about the missionaries God used in your life. And for most of us, they were everyday, ordinary people. But that's how God works, isn't it? God loves using ordinary people to tell the extraordinary good news of Jesus. And, and that's what's so inspiring, I hope, to all of us, that God can use every one of us in this room. You don't need a PhD in theology. You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew. It doesn't matter your age or our education. It doesn't matter if we're a man or a woman or young or old or rich or poor. It, it doesn't, none of that stuff matters to God. It doesn't matter if you're a, a wealthy business owner or a former drug dealer. God can use anybody. God is saying to every one of us, be like shepherds and go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. So first, the shepherds remind us that Christmas is God's invitation for outsiders to come in. Secondly, the shepherds show us that uh, God uses unlikely candidates to be his greatest messengers. But third, the prominence. I think of shepherds in the Christmas story tells us something about the kind of savior that Jesus would be. He himself would be a shepherd. Now, this is, this is too much to be merely irony, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that the shepherds were the first to welcome the good shepherd into the world? Don't you think God was intentional there? And Jesus embraces this identity. In John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus wants us to see him as a shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But there's this further connection, I think, that shows us the presence of shepherds in the Christmas story um, is not coincidental. And here's how I know this. Go back to Luke chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, and notice what happens. An angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, what are the angels saying to the shepherds? Here's what they're saying. Don't fear. Why? Because the good shepherd is here. Don't fear. Why? The good shepherd is here. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like Psalm 23? 
Isn't this what God wants to communicate to us at Christmas? In Psalm 23, the Lord is my what? The Lord is my shepherd. That's why I don't want, because I have all that I need in him. The Lord is my shepherd. But then he says a few verses later, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? I will fear no evil. So when we're afraid, God wants us to think shepherd. When we're anxious, God wants us to think, I'm your shepherd. When you can't sleep at night because you're so overwhelmed by what the week hold, God wants you to see Jesus as a shepherd, as a gentle, lowly, humble, tender, compassionate, kind shepherd who always invites in the outsiders. This is why it's so thematic throughout Scripture. In Luke 12, Jesus is communicating to his disciples. He says, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. Now, how does he give them comfort in their anxieties? A few verses later, fear not, little flock. You see, don't be afraid. What's he saying? Little lambs, little flock, my little sheepies, my little lambs. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm your shepherd. I'm leading you. Jesus never said we won't walk through hell, but he said he'll hold our hand. He, he never promised the alleviation of pain, but he did promise the presence of comfort through his rod and staff. So, so what's causing you anxiety today? Because to be human is to be anxious, isn't it? But, but Jesus has so many antidotes, and it's his presence. It's his shepherd-like presence. Is it family drama that is exacerbated over the, the holiday season? Is it the, the loneliness that comes with the holidays is we remember a uh, family that we've lost. Is it, is it the wayward child? Is it the financial burdens of, of trying to provide a certain level of Christmas for our family that, to keep up with, with the Joneses? What, there's so much. Is it the depression that comes with the holiday season? There's so much to be anxious about. But the Christmas season, by definition, reminds us it's not a time to fear because the good shepherd is near. And listen, he's not just near. He is actually here through the presence of his spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ. Christ isn't just near. He's here. Will you receive him? Will you abide with him? Will you let him fill you this holiday season? Why would we go on being anxious, biting our nails and fretting about things we can't change when the good shepherd is here and he is perfectly capable of leading his little lambs? Don't think about ourselves as mighty horses. Think about ourselves as little lambs who are needy, who need to be held and cared for, and bandaged up. Stop trying to be so strong is what some of us need to hear. Be little, be low, be timid, be weak, be shy, be humble, be a little lamb. Because those are to whom the good shepherd longs to come. He's near, he's here, isn't he? But then finally, it's only appropriate that the shepherds be the first to welcome the Lamb of God into the world. This is, is not coincidence, is it? Darling writes in his book, the Lamb of God would first be held and handled and touched by those who knew how to appreciate and care for a lamb. You know, one of the very few reasons that shepherds were respected at all by anyone 
is simply because it was their job to care for the little lambs who would go to the temple to be sacrificed for the sins of people. Because without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sins. Now, with that in mind, look at a very important detail in our text that for years I've just skipped right over. Verse 8, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock when? By night. Now, we just read that and think, well, what's the big deal? They were working at night. A lot of us do that. But Hebrew scholar David Miller points out, shepherds don't normally work in the fields at night. Well, that's interesting. Luke tells us these shepherds were working outside at night. That's not the custom. That's not the norm. Why would they be doing that? Well, normally, shepherds would be in the sheepfold at night. They would sleep inside. A sheepfold was like an outcropping of rock, kind of like a small little cave tucked into the land. And it would be a stone pen around the outside in a narrow gate. That's where the imagery Jesus says, you know, I'm, come to me, I'm the gate in John 10. But anyway, the only sheep you would likely find in a field at night were the sheep that were about to be sacrificed in the temple. Because according to the Jewish law, sheep for the temple sacrifice, they had to stay outside. They couldn't go inside any structure or the sheepfold before their sacrifice. They were raised in what was called the Tower of Sheep, which we know historically was right by Bethlehem, which means it is very likely, almost certain, that is, that the birth of Jesus was revealed first to shepherds that were watching little sheep that were about to be sacrificed in the temple for the sins of the people. So, in some sense, the shepherds, they, they knew that lambs were born to die. But, but not just to die in vain, but to, to die for the forgiveness of sinners. They, they had this in their mind. But I wonder, as the shepherds made their way to Bethlehem that night, I wonder if they understood as they left the lambs who would be slain, that they were going to see lying in a trough the Lamb of God who would be slain for the sins of the world. Can you imagine the wonder? If they didn't get it that night, I don't know if they did or not, they got it 30 years later for sure when John the Baptist saw Jesus. He said, behold, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus was a shepherd who came to save his little lambs, but to save his little lambs, Jesus had to become a lamb himself. Jesus was a shepherd and a lamb. The shepherd substitutes himself as a lamb to save the lambs, the lamb to be sacrificed for the sins of the world, so his little lambs could be at peace with God. Because sinners, how could sinners be at peace with a holy God? How is it possible? Well, the, the, the angels anticipate this. The angels foretaste the gospel. Look what they said in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. How can sinners be at peace with the holy God? Only through the Lamb of God. Only through sacrifice. Only through atonement. Only through the appeasement of anger and wrath and judgment. Only through Jesus. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. Peace from Luke, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So the lamb that was born in a manger, the lamb who was first worshipped by a group of shepherds who, unlike anybody else, understood and appreciated the value and the preciousness of lambs who were to be slain, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, man, I love my Hallmark movies. I love my peanut butter balls. I love hot chocolate. I love my flannel pajamas. I love seeing the, the wonder in my kids' eyes. Um, I love the magic of Christmas and everything that comes with it. But Kent Hughes carefully reminds us this holiday season. The truth is, even if Christ were born in Bethlehem a thousand times, but not within you, you would be eternally lost. The Christ who was born into the world must be born in your heart, religious sentiment, even at Christmas time. Without the living Christ is a yellow brick road to darkness. Friends, we all believe in the magic of Christmas, but do you believe in the Christ of Christmas? The Lamb of God was born in a manger, but has the Lamb of God been born in your heart? Christmas magic doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. Don't miss Christ in the midst of all the holiday stuff. Father, in Jesus' name, we need your presence. Father, we are an anxious people. We are a weary people. Lord, we are little lambs who run here and there and who fall all over the place. And Lord, we get caught up this season in materialism and consumerism and uh, all that stuff. When Lord Jesus, you are right here. You are present with your people and you are longing to be known and you are longing to know us. So Lord, I just pray that you would reveal yourself to us this Christmas season. Jesus, that you would be present, that we would see you as a good shepherd. Lord, we would worship you as the Lamb of God who was slain, but also as the one who's been risen from the dead and victoriously rules and reigns. Father, there are, there are people in this room who, who are lost in their sin. Father, there are people in this room who, who love Christmas but don't love Christ. God, show us that religious and holiday sentimentality doesn't forgive our sins. We need a Savior. We need a Lamb. We need blood. We need Christ who was born to die. So, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, unless someone is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. God, would you give the new birth? Would you open up hearts and show anyone here that is outside of Christ, show them their need of saving, that sin is real and the wrath of God is heavy, but mercy is freely available to anyone who will repent of sin and believe in Jesus. The worst of sinners can be saved by the blood of Jesus. So God, would you grant the new birth as we celebrate Jesus' birth? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and sing together.